This is Soul Searching, prestigiously crowned as this station's 2016's Show of the Year, right here on Gay SA Radio. It is our time each week to explore all spiritual and wellness matters that matter. My name is Tom Budge. Soul Searching is a penetrating self-examination of our motives, convictions and attitudes. I'm not shy to ask awkward questions, to poke holes in belief systems, and to query the way the world taught us to think. My intention is clear. I will never ask you to give up what you hold sacred. I'll never expect you to accept my opinion as the only correct one. I do encourage you, however, to challenge your personal beliefs and thoughts, to open up your mind to fresh ideas and free thinking. How you use these concepts to redesign your life is up to you, isn't it? Today we examine the Ten Commandments given to Moses by God during the Israelites' exodus from Egypt. We will hear from many critics who believe that these commandments are plainly ridiculous and have no place in a modern world. There are, of course, many people who hold these commandments as sacred instructions from God. While we obviously can't reconcile all beliefs, we can chew on some ideas, leaving the final say as to their applicability up to you. This is a complex story, which I shall try to explain in the easiest way I can. First, there is a guy by the name of Abraham. You might remember him as a wise Old Testament man with whom God conversed. He was the man God tested by asking him to sacrifice his dearly beloved son Isaac on an altar. Nice one. Poor Abraham must have been beside himself with stress, yet it appears that God only needed to test Abraham's intentions and called the whole sacrifice off moments before Abraham would have plunged the dagger into his son's heart. One wonders why such a supreme being who sees into people's hearts would devise such a cruel test when he probably already knew of Abraham's loyal devotion to him. Anyway, that's just the way God did it back then, and who are we to argue with him? Let's eavesdrop on a dialogue God had with Abraham. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Not only was Abraham expected to murder his son, but now he is told that his children, for generations to come, will be dispossessed of their land and held captive in a foreign country for four centuries. That's one hell of a punishment. Before we try to understand why God was so annoyed, let's get context for the length of the sentence. It wasn't just a few years in slavery. It was slavery that lasted for four centuries. Early South African pioneers discovered gold on the reef here in South Africa in 1884. That's only 132 years ago. This punishment is close to three times as long as that. We know that Jan van Riebeck reached the Cape a very long time ago. In fact, he disembarked in 1652. That's 364 years ago. This sentence is a little bit longer than even that. God, so maddened by something, had him plotting a merciless scheme to punish Abraham's offspring. 
But isn't this supposed to be the God who is slow to anger and abounding in mercy? Richard Dawkins is very outspoken in his criticism of the Old Testament God. Here's how he describes him. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. <laughs> Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. The Bible gives us a bit of a clue as to why God was so angry. Here's what he, God, said to Abraham. It is because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So it all boils down to the fault of the Amorites, does it? The Amorites first appear in history as nomads who regularly made incursions from the West into established territories and kingdoms. Amorite might not have originally referred to a specific ethnic group, but to any nomadic people who threatened the stability of established communities. Joshua J. Mark is a freelance writer and part-time professor of philosophy at Marist College in New York. He writes about the Amorites. They were a certain tribe of people with a specific culture based on a nomadic lifestyle of living off the land and taking what was needed from the communities they encountered. They grew more powerful as they acquired more land, until finally they directly threatened the stability of those in the established cities of the region. The Amorites played a pivotal role in the development of world culture. They lived in what is now modern-day Syria, and worshipped their own pantheon of gods. As inhabitants of the land of Canaan, they were clearly separate from the Israelites. The theory that the Amorites, through their appropriation and transmission of Mesopotamian myths, would produce the biblical narratives of the Old Testament has been challenged repeatedly over the years, and no doubt will continue to be so. There seems to be more evidence to support this theory, however, than to disprove it. I don't quite get why Abraham's offspring had to endure such long hardship because the Amorites worshipped other gods and participated in numerous other sins. The only thing that seems to make any sense is that God promised to remove them from the land where the exiled Israelites would one day live. So why couldn't he just point his finger at the patch of land where the Amorites were living and blitz them? Poof! No more Amorites. It would have saved a lot of time and hardship for the poor Israelites, wouldn't it? Isaac, the son that escaped being slaughtered by his father at God's request, was a bit of a miracle child. He was conceived when his mother was 90 and his father 100 years old. Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau sold his birthright to his younger brother for a bowl of stew. Jacob, who had his name later changed to Israel, is regarded as the patriarch of the Israelites. 
He had 12 sons, and they became the head of the 12 tribes of Israel. It was during Jacob's lifetime, when a seven-year famine occurred in the land of Canaan, that forced he and his family to move to Egypt. Egypt put the Israelites to work as slaves, but the time would come for them to leave. By then, Moses, remember he was the kid that floated down the Nile in the wicker basket, had risen in power and led the nation out of Egypt, across the miraculously parted Dead Sea and into the Sinai Peninsula. But archaeologists find no evidence of this exodus, and the historian Carol Redmond comments saying, Presumably, an original Exodus story lies hidden somewhere inside all the latter revisions and alterations to the writings of the 8th century prophets. But centuries of transmission have long obscured its presence. Its substance, accuracy and date are now very difficult to determine. There's also a logistical conundrum. If one takes the biblical account of the number of people traipsing through the desert, one arrives at a figure of some two million people. Walking ten abreast, they would have formed a line some 150 kilometers in length. It's also estimated that the population of Egypt was just over three million at the time, yet there is no record of it having suffered the demographic loss of one-third of its population. Lastly, there seems to be little evidence that the harsh Sinai desert would have supported a couple of million people on the move. The comedian Eddie Izzard has his own unique way of describing this situation. So then the Hebrew people wandered in the desert for 40 years. And if I had been with them after 23 years, I would have said, Where are we going? <laughs> We're just wandering in the desert. I'll give you 17 more years and that's it. And after 17, after 40 years, after 40 years, it was obviously going nuts. Everyone was going nuts. I'm going to have sex with my feet. I'm going to cut my buttocks off and use them as headphones. I'm going to fill myself with sand and sell myself to a taxidermist. And Moses said, no, you can't do this. There are rules. There are no rules. All right, I'll get 10. Just one would do fine. No, 10, it shall be. Let's pause here for a moment to review the story. God had been deeply annoyed at the Amorites and chose to punish the Israelites by enslaving them in Egypt for 400 years. Now, freed from their ordeal, a column of people 10 wide and 150 kilometers in length wandered around the Sinai Peninsula for 40 years. Finally, God had a chance to lay down the law. It's not surprising given this extended tribulation that the Israelites had lost their faith in their God and turned to smelting gold to create an image of a bull, which they then worshipped. Silent for so long, God appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai to instruct him on the final leg of the exiled nation's journey back home to the Promised Land. Given the poignancy of this moment, what would you have said to Moses if you were God? I might have offered a heap of praise, Thanks, guys, for your loyalty. I know that I tested you to the extreme, and I'm really pleased with your loyalty having come this far. I can understand why you might have lost faith in me. That's not unexpected. But I am now here to instruct Moses to take you home. But what does God do instead? 
he becomes autocratic and in an ungrateful way lays down a list of ten bands and directives. They instruct these forlorn people to worship only one God, to honor their parents, to keep the Sabbath, and prohibit against idolatry, blasphemy, murder, adultery, theft, dishonesty, and coveting. Here's a snippet of the dramatic soundtrack from the epic 1956 movie The Ten Commandments, directed by Cecil B. DeMille, and starring Yul Brenner, and Baxter, and Charlton Heston in the leading role of Moses. Woe unto thee, O Israel! You have sinned a great sin in the sight of God! You are not worthy to receive these Ten Commandments. We're gathered against you, Moses. You take too much upon yourself. We will not live by your commandments. We're free. There is no freedom without the law. Whose law, Moses? Yours? Did you carve those tablets to become a prince over us? Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come to me. Honey, I show you a god of gold. Come with me. Follow me. Blasphemers, idolaters. For this you shall drink bitter waters. God has set before you this day his laws of life and good and death and evil. Those who will not live by the law It's very easy to get caught in the theatrical performance portrayed in the movie, but here's Richard Dawkins' reaction to the Ten Commandments. He, as you know, is an English ethologist. (laughs) What the heck is an ethologist, you rightly ask? Ethology is the scientific and objective study of animal behavior, usually with a focus on behavior under natural conditions, and viewing behavior as an evolutionary adaptive trait. Dawkins, however, is better known as an ardent critic of religion. People seldom actually know what the Ten Commandments are. (laughs) Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Is that really a moral principle we should be living by? At the time when that was written down, the Jews were polytheists, or recently changed from polytheism. They believed that lots of gods existed, and they were under very strict instructions to worship only one of them, the jealous God. <laughs> thou shalt make, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. 
a moral principle to live by. Don't make any grave images. <laughs> Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Aren't there better things to worry about? <laughs> Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honour thy father and thy mother. That's rather a good one. <laughs> well, finally, we come to what you might call the good commandments. There aren't very many of them. Thou shalt not kill. Well, that's a pretty good motto. <laughs> but you may remember Christopher Hitchens' sarcastic remark, saying roughly, Moses came down from the mountain with the tablets, and the Israelites said something like, well, I, I like to imagine it in John Cleese's voice. <laughs> oh, I see! Watch out, not kill! Oh, how silly of me! Real one was a terrific idea to kill! <laughs> now we know better! Oh, silly me! meet anybody who gets his morals from the Old Testament, uh, I think you'd be wise to give him a white berth. <laughs> the late George Carlin was an American stand-up comedian and social critic noted for his thoughts on politics and religion. He too reflected on the Ten Commandments. Now folks, here's something else I got a problem with. The Ten Commandments. Here's my problem. Why are there ten? You don't need ten. I think the list of commandments was deliberately and artificially inflated to get it up to ten. It's a padded list. Here's what they did. About 5,000 years ago, a bunch of religious and political hustlers got together to try to figure out how to control people, how to keep them in line. They knew people were basically stupid and would believe anything they were told, so they announced that God had given them some commandments. Up on a mountain, when no one was around, God had given them the Ten Commandments. But let me ask you this. Why did they pick ten? Why ten? Why not nine or eleven? I'll tell you why. Because ten sounds official. Ten sounds important. They knew if it was eleven, people wouldn't take it seriously. So having ten commandments was really a marketing decision. It's a political document artificially inflated to sell better. We're going to start with the first three. I am the Lord thy God. Thou shalt not have strange gods before me. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Thou shalt keep holy the Sabbath. Sabbath day, Lord's name, strange gods. Spooky language. Designed to scare and control primitive people. Next, honor thy father and mother. Obedience, respect for authority just another name for controlling people. The truth is, obedience and respect should not be automatic. They should be earned. Some, some parents deserve respect. Most of them don't. Period. Now, in the interest of logic, something religion is very uncomfortable with, we're going to jump around the list a little bit. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Stealing and lying. Well, actually, these two both prohibit the same kind of behavior. Dishonesty, stealing, and lying. 
And as long as we're combining, I have two others that belong together. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Once again, these two prohibit the same kind of behavior. In this case, marital infidelity. The difference is coveting takes place in the mind. And I don't think you should outlaw fantasizing about someone else's wife. But marital fidelity is a good idea. So we're going to keep the idea and call this one... Thou shalt not be unfaithful. But when you think about it, honesty and fidelity are really part of the same overall value. So in truth, you could combine the two honesty commandments with the two fidelity commandments and give them simpler language, positive language instead of negative, and call the whole thing, Thou shalt always be honest and faithful. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. This one is just plain stupid. <laughs> Coveting your neighbor's goods is what keeps the economy going. <laughs> Am I right? Coveting creates jobs. Leave it alone. And the one we haven't talked about yet, thou shalt not kill. Murder. When you think about it, religion has never really had a big problem with murder. Not really. More people have been killed in the name of God than for any other reason. All you have to do is look at Northern Ireland, the Middle East, Kashmir, the Inquisition, the Crusades, and the World Trade Center to see how seriously the religious folks take Thou Shalt Not Kill. The more devout they are, the more they see murder as being negotiable. It's negotiable. It depends on who's doing the killing and who's getting killed. So, with all of this in mind, I leave you with my revised list of the Two Commandments. Thou shalt always be honest and faithful to the provider of thy nookie. And thou shalt try real hard not to kill anyone. Unless, of course, they pray to a different invisible man from the one you pray to. If religion is keen to discard most of the prohibitions of the Old Testament, should we then discard the Ten Commandments too? If the Bible is mainly a complex metaphor instead of being a true story about real people, then what are we to learn from all of this? What if God doesn't exist at all as a tyrannical old man living somewhere out there in a place called heaven? What if God symbolizes the highest achievement we can ever attain as a human being? If God was within each of us and not in one external location, then it would be very appropriate for us to worship just one God and not many. What does this mean in practical terms, though? If false gods represented worldly possessions, financial wealth, egotism, fame and status, then idolatry would be our worshipping of a pantheon of these demigods, each of which gives us an unauthentic, false perception of who we truly are. However, if God symbolizes our highest pinnacle of self, then it would make sense to devote our existence to attaining the highest levels possible as a human being. As for all the prohibitions of the Ten Commandments, they all urge us to seek our highest status, to achieve the God within. My daily practice then is to repeatedly ask myself just one question. This that I'm about to do, say, or think, will it enhance my relationship with myself? If it does, I do it with gusto. If not, I have waited like the plague. Thank you for listening to Soul Searching here on Gay SA Radio. 
Your comments and suggestions help shape the show, and I'm always happy to receive them. Write to me at studio at gayessayradio.co.za or post on the station's social media platforms using the hashtag gayessayradio. This program premieres on Sundays at 5 p.m. and repeats the following Sunday at 8 a.m. A full set of podcasts of the show is available on the station's website, gayessayradio.co.za. My name is Tom Budge. Until next time, goodbye.